What is like your elevator pitch or summary about what Knative is? It's a set of serverless tools for running applications on Kubernetes. You know, I'm happy to unpack the serverless. I think serverless actually gets defined way more narrowly than it should be. You'll notice that I've always defined it in this podcast as doing some work without having to think about how that maps down onto individual servers. Yeah. If you look at something like user-defined functions in BigQuery, which is a basically a massively scalable SQL query engine that Google has, you can load a you know a terabyte of data in it, and then you can ask questions. And it's got smart ways of fanning out the work so that you can answer in like 30 seconds. And it's reasonable to do things like run a regex on this column and select the, the rows that match this regex. That's yeah. a user-defined function. That's serverless because you're like, here's my function, run it on the row. The row is the unit of work. Mm-hmm. I don't care how it all gets scheduled. I don't care how the data flows. That's your problem, not mine. Welcome back to Alexa's Input. As simple as possible, as powerful as necessary, right? Welcome to Alexa's Input. The person is probably more interesting than the tool that they're using. Welcome to Alexa's Input! Welcome to the fifth episode of Alexa's 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 Input. Then a six-year-old runs into the data center with a squirt gun and they set that machine into a pile of sparks and flames. Yes, it's a good thing to do. Is it the thing we should be doing? Welcome to Alexa's Input. Welcome back to Alexa's Input. On this episode, we have Evan Anderson again. This is the part two. Um, If you missed the last episode, just a quick uh, refresher on his background. He worked at Google for 15 years, and he left as senior staff software engineer. Now, since December of 2019, for almost three years, he has been a senior staff engineer at VMware. He also is very involved with the Knative project, which we discuss a lot more about in this episode. So in this episode, we talk about provisioning resources in a serverless world and how that works. So measuring in queries per storage or query execution chunks and in general, just becoming serverless. Um, And we talk about at what point does efficiency matter and when do you not care and where Knative falls short and what still needs to be done. We discuss more about the key features of Knative, build, serve, and eventing, and how these aid in small pushes towards breaking out of the monolith. We also talk about eventing more and the idea of a function as a service, and much, much more. So make sure to tune in for this episode. I don't think you'll regret it, and as always, I can't wait to have Evan back on in the future. It was super nice to meet him at KubeCon a few weeks ago, and I look forward to working with him more. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. If you can, please go to the anchor link in the description and donate. Um, You can do as little as 99 cents, and you can go up from there. I appreciate everyone who does donate. Just know I see you. I appreciate you. And thank you for listening and investing in my podcast. Also, don't forget to hit the subscribe button because then it notifies you about new episodes that come out. You can also follow the Twitter account at Alexa's Input to know more information about new episodes and when they come out as well. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode.
in 2017, Istio had just come out and we said, oh, hey, it looks like there's about to be sort of a higher level of networking capability here, which is the capability that we want to be able to do traffic splitting on a you know URL basis. So all the requests that go to this URL, you know, 90% of them go to the current version and 10% go to the new version, which is a capability that App Engine had for a really long time. And we saw a lot of great and creative uses for it. Um, lots of people still deploy their App Engine apps, what we call YOLO mode in Knative, um, which is <laughs> you only live once. Yeah. Um, and it's basically, you take your container and you're like, here, go. Yeah. And like, you just move all the traffic over to the new thing. And if it works, that's great. And if it turns out that you screwed up your CSS, then your site looks terrible until you figure out how to roll it back. Yeah. Um, but we wanted to be able to help people who lived in that world while also yeah. helping people who were maybe more advanced and were, were looking for those higher level capabilities. So we wanted those capabilities to be there um, in our HTTP routing. And we didn't really want to write our own HTTP router because it turns yeah. out that um, that's a bug farm among a lot of other things. And it's hard work to yeah. make it fast and performant and so forth. But fortunately, um, a year or two before that, Lyft had open sourced this Envoy proxy, um, which is pretty programmable and popular. And it turned out that um, after we launched our 0.1, which we'd done a bunch of work to get to work with Istio, um, we got some good feedback from a bunch of folks, including Joe Beta, um, wow. who Impressive. was one of the you know, founders of Kubernetes and who I'd worked with on Compute Engine. So I knew him from a ways back. And he said, hey, you know, it's he he did a TGIK actually on Knative. He did two on the 0.1 of Knative because um, it was his Friday podcast and he would sort of go and like dig into a Kubernetes related technology. And oh, that's cool. um, he got an AWS cluster set up and he was like, okay, I'm going to take a look at what I'm going to put on here with this K, with this Knative and Istio stuff. And awesome. He spent the entire first thing just kind of poking around at like, what does Istio do and so forth and what is in here? Um, we also had some unfortunate um, side effects of the maturity of Kubernetes and CRDs and things like that. Um, at the last minute, we'd had to go from using the Prometheus operator to define dashboards and so forth to uh -huh. extracting all the dashboards the Prometheus operator would generate and putting the HTML into config maps so that you could load up the dashboard from the config maps oh, okay. um, through Grafana. And so we had like 500 kilobytes or more of HTML in config map with Prometheus templates scattered throughout and multiple levels of YAML escaping in all of it. So um, Joe kind of looked at this for his first one and was like, there's some stuff going on here. There's a lot of stuff going on here. You folks need to simplify. Um, but one of the pieces of feedback there was, yeah. hey, this Istio dependency is a really big dependency and maybe not everyone's willing to bite off a service mesh to get serverless. Yeah. Um, so I sat down real quick and I wrote out, here's the stuff we get from Istio. If someone wants to show up and give us these things, that aren't in the Kubernetes ingress, yeah. then um, we'd be willing to talk and figure out how to do that. 
Yeah. And lo and behold, um, Ambassador Labs and um, I think it's Solio has the glue proxy, but the glue folks um, showed up and said, hey, we're interested. And so we sat down and we defined what would our ideal ingress look like? Yeah. And if you're actually using Knative today, you'll see that we have our own ingress type that's under um, networking internal Knative dev um, that is what we wish ingress was. Yeah. Um, and so that's now a pluggable layer. Nice. For Knative. So you can choose between um, Contour or Ambassador or Glue or Istio um, someone decided that they wanted to write a minimal one. So we also have one called Courier that was written just for Knative and oh, nice. only interprets K ingress and isn't a general purpose, you know, put all your apps behind it, but is just put your Knative stuff behind it if that's all you yeah. need. Um, and it uses Envoy underneath. So it's not writing its own HTTP proxy. Um, but I tend to go into a lot of background no, no, I love it. The short so version of all of this is that Knative has these layers and dependencies, and you need to get those layers and dependencies installed on your Kubernetes cluster before you get Knative installed. And Knative depends on Kubernetes very heavily and the other parts as well. Um, OpenFast gives you everything, you know, comes in one box. Yeah. And it's a little bit more of a Cloud Foundry-like experience where you can sub out, oh, I get containers from Docker or I get containers from Kubernetes. Yeah. But um, the main thing that's driving the show there is OpenFAS. And the main thing that's driving the show in Knative is the Kubernetes API server. And yeah. so everything we have are all CRDs and controller-based and so forth. Um, we don't have an API you go to really other than the Kubernetes one. Yeah. And so if you want to know, like, how do I prevent someone from doing X? It's like, well, how would you do it if it wasn't Knative and it was some other Kubernetes resource? Yeah. Reach for your reach for your um, OPA gatekeeper or your Caverno or your RBAC or whatever. And those are the tools that um, are available to you. So why what reasons do people not want to use Istio if they're trying to be serverless and use so there's a couple different reasons um some of which are historical um a fun lesson from all of this is that first impressions will define your brand for a very long time whether you mean to or not um <laughs> there's lots of people who still think knative only works with istio that is not true um but this was istio 1.0 and 1.1 days um and they'd gone real hard on the microservices route. So in yeah. addition to running, if you were running it in a service mesh, running a sidecar next to every single pod, consuming resources and blocking your network access until it's had a chance to read in the policy of what you're allowed to access. Um, so that was mm -hmm. another fun thing with Istio 1.0. Um, it picked secure by default as a default which yeah. is great until you had a Kubernetes cluster that was working and then yeah. you install Istio and the entire cluster stops working because it's protecting you from accessing things that you haven't specifically said you want. And you had a thing working and you didn't know what was talking to each other. 
Istio has changed their default since then. Yeah. <laughs> but installing Istio 1.0 was a good way to get your cluster screeching to a halt until you figured out all the stuff you needed. It was probably wow. the first thing you should install on your cluster so that you could not have, you know, half dozen other things that you were trying to figure out. Okay, you know, I had these other things working and now they're not. Or God forbid you had something that was um, mutating pods or something like that. And you cut off the network access between API server and that webhook. So you couldn't Jeez. launch the pods in yeah. order to fix your things. So you couldn't run your controllers and your controllers couldn't talk to the API server. And it was all bad. And eventually you got your policy straightened out and life was okay. But I understand how that could have given some people a bad taste in their mouth. Um, I could understand Additionally, prior to Istio 1.6 or 1.7 or something like that, um, they had like five different servers, each of which did one very specific thing in talking to Envoy. Yeah. Um, and so there was just a lot of things to get onto your cluster and it used um, a decent amount of resources talking between those microservices and yeah. between the microservices and the mesh. Um, so it was somewhat heavyweight there. It installed, I don't know, like 40 CRDs. So there were a lot of concepts that you felt like, maybe I need to know this and unpack it. Yeah, and um, maintain it, yeah. And one of the things I tell people at VMware is, and I tell people about Knative in general, um, is that our aim is really to, to solve problems for those business developers and mm -hmm. making them have to understand more about the infrastructure is pushing business concepts they need to understand out of their head to yeah. teach them infrastructure concepts. And that is the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, with Knative, if you have something that answers HTTP and doesn't do any weird background stuff, there's one object and, you know, the minimal thing you need to define fits in a tweet um, yeah. of YAML um, to run something successfully. Um, I love that it fits in a tweet. So. But if you look at the, hey, let's run Nginx and serve a static page on the Kubernetes documentation. Well, you probably need to understand pods. Yeah. You might not need to understand replica sets. They're hiding in there. They make your names long and weird. You need to understand deployments. You yeah. need to understand label matching. Yeah. That's a non-trivial concept for people to get. You need to be able to describe, you need to understand services and the networking aspects they talk about separately from deployments. And it's important yeah. to have those concepts separate for certain types of applications. And for yeah. other types of applications, you're like, here's my deployment, here's my service. They go hand in hand together. And like never, you know, never have one without the other. Yeah. Um, and then you probably need ingress on top of that. And maybe on top of that, you need to figure out how to use like cert manager or something to get TLS on there. Yeah. Um, Knative aims to make administrators have to deal with some of that stuff, like getting cert manager set up with a cluster issuer. But it aims to make developers be able to say like, hey, Here's my service. Please make it work. So and what is Knative your... should come back and say, here's your URL. Yeah. You don't need to figure out what the URL would be. Here it is for you. I like that. <laughs> so what is like your elevator pitch or summary about what Knative is when people ask you? Um, it's a set of um, serverless tools for running 
applications on Kubernetes. Yeah. And, you know, I'm happy to unpack the serverless. I think serverless actually gets defined way more narrowly than it should be. Um, you'll notice that I've always defined it in this podcast as yeah. um, doing some work without having to think about how that maps down onto individual servers. Yeah. If you look at something like um, user-defined functions in BigQuery, um, which is a um, massively, basically a massively scalable SQL query engine that Google has. You can load a, you know, a terabyte of data in it, and then you can ask questions. And it's got smart ways of fanning out the work so that you can answer in like 30 seconds. And it's reasonable to do things like run a regex on this column and select the, the rows that match this regex. Or here's a little bit of code you should run on this string to figure out, is it a match or not? That's yeah. a user-defined function. That's serverless because you're like, here's my function, run it on the row. The row is the unit of work. Mm -hmm. I don't care how it all gets scheduled. I don't care how the data flows. That's your problem, not mine. Yeah. Um, CockroachDB is actually doing a really interesting thing with um, a Postgres API and they have a serverless interface. So it looks like you get a Postgres database. Mm -hmm. And underneath it's a key value store that they've built um, based on their experience with Spanner and so forth. But you show up and you say, hey, I need this many queries per second and this much storage. You know, I yeah. need 100 megabytes of storage or I need five gigabytes of storage or I need 50 terabytes of storage, you know, 200 terabytes of storage. Yeah. You know, you pay for it as you use it. And, you know, you're like, hey, I need, you know, 200 terabytes of storage and I need, um, you know, 2000 queries per second. And they're like, okay, here you go. And you're, you're asking for it in units of queries and storage, which yeah. are the things you care about, not yeah. um, to contrast it. Um, some of the older AWS APIs um, very clearly have servers baked into their units of provisioning. So if you look at, um, oh, who do I want to pick on? Uh, DynamoDB <laughs> for a while had this. I think they've gotten more serverless since. Yeah. Um, but in DynamoDB, you basically had query execution chunks that you had to buy and provision. And those yeah. query execution chunks basically were a server or a yeah. core. Um, and it wasn't about, you know, oh, I want to get X throughput. It was, I buy this many chunks. Resources. And each chunk should yeah. give me a certain amount of throughput, you know, or updates or whatever. But yeah. You should really be thinking of it the other way around. Um, you know, you shouldn't have to do that envelope math. You should say, hey, I'm buying, you know, 50,000 writes per second to this DynamoDB table. Amazon, I'm handing you, you know, a fuck ton of money. Yeah. <laughs> Would you please do the math as to how many servers I need? Here is the money. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, and so turning around and being like, no, you have to do the math. And if you do it wrong, that's your fault, not ours. Um, feels like it's an unnecessary barrier to people getting their jobs done. Yeah, I agree. And so serverless is all about taking away that barrier, in my opinion. Whether you're on-prem or whether you're, you know, in a hyperscaler, whether you are an edge device, you know, um, I'd say a lot of the stuff that Cloudflare does is serverless. Yeah. 
or Netlify yeah. um, are other great examples. You know, Netlify, please build my static site. I don't care how you do it. GitHub Actions, please run my actions. Yeah. I don't care. Like, I know maybe that there's slots or something in the background and maybe yeah. I need to buy more capacity for those or my stuff gets delayed. But as a consumer, it, yeah. I'm like, just run this stuff. And we use GitHub Actions a lot um, in Knative. Um, we found that super helpful. And the model they've got there is just spot on. Yeah, I like that. So um, focusing not on like how many cores I need, just however many it takes to run it. How many like, parallel how executions yeah. of actions do I need? Yeah. Is the question I answer there, uh, you know, for GitHub Actions. It's not like there's no limit, but, you know, we have we have hit those limits. We have definitely yeah. hit those limits and queued things up. But um, we've talked about, you know, oh, do we pay? Do we beg? We're an open source project. Please give us more quota for free. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, do do we re-architect our stuff so that we don't hit those as much? But I love that it's, you know, it clearly correlates with stuff that we do yeah. and not like some weird backend thing like, oh, you get like, 45 threads unblocked yeah. or something like that. And you're like, how do I keep track yeah. of my unblocked threads? Yeah. No, it's, you know, this stuff runs and maybe like, maybe it actually only gets a quarter of a CPU to execute on because yeah. GitHub's decided to squeeze that. But I don't see that and I don't care. That's something yeah. that GitHub chooses. And as a user, I'm just like, uh, actions feel like they take long, they took longer than they used to. And maybe I'm okay yeah. with that. Maybe I decided to take my business elsewhere, but um, I'm not being asked to make that decision myself. Yeah, you're definitely putting some of those more like low level decisions on that, on the person that you're using. And I guess you have to decide if you're okay with that or not. Hopefully I mean, they make the best of it. I'm sure in, at some, and sometimes it's probably more efficient and other times maybe it's not. There's... Um... There's an interesting calculus that I encountered at Google that I hadn't seen laid out quite that way before. Um, and I think it might've been Steve Yegi, who's um, I guess somewhat internet infamous in the software engineering parts, um, but he'd wanted to do, you know, a project to show that it could work with um, Ruby and part of that project involved a MapReduce. And so he wanted to, to make MapReduce bindings through the Java MapReduce library to JRuby. Um, and one of the MapReduce folks sat him down and explained to him that he should not do this. He should write his Ruby code and then transcribe it into Java because that was cheaper for the company than running the Ruby code you know, on 5,000 machines mm -hmm. with Ruby's efficiency compared with Java's efficiency, and that his salary was not high enough to cover the cost difference. Wow. You know, if it's a difference between, <laughs> hey, we need 500 machines and we need 1,500 machines to support this, 1,000 machines is the kind of money that makes a director or a VP pay attention. Yeah. And so at some scale, you say, hey, the efficiency matters. Yeah. And below a certain point, the efficiency does not matter. 
Yeah. Just like, you know, there are some inner loops that you just really need to tightly tune. And for every other inner loop, you mostly don't care. It's going to run over 10 or 20 things. And, you know, so what if it's half as fast? It runs over 10 or 20 things once a minute and nobody cares. And then there's that one loop that runs over possibly 500 things and happens for every single HTTP request. And yeah, you optimize the heck out of that thing. You do mm -hmm. your loop unrolling, you do your predictive stuff, you figure out, you know, should I branch or should I do linear stuff? Because, you know, and you benchmark both ways. You don't yeah. just like think real hard and guess because you're going to get it wrong with how fancy processors are these days. You benchmark it both ways. Um, and if you're really fancy and clever in the C world, um, you actually get your compiler to do different levels of optimization and you hand it both benchmarks and it figures out which which optimizations do better benchmarks and it yeah. compiles your code that way. Feedback directed optimization. Love that. Um, so and everywhere else, that kind of stuff does not matter. It's a True. big distraction. So True. know whether you're in that optimal loop or not. <laughs> yeah, like no one. And no if you're wondering, that. you're probably not. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta ask the question. You're yeah. Probably not. Uh, if you know, you know for sure. Um, so where do you think that uh, Knative falls short? Falls short now. Uh, what do you think that needs to still be done? I mean. If you, so an interesting question is what are the bounds of Knative? Yeah. Um, Knative aims to provide serverless tools for running things on Kubernetes serverlessly. It doesn't aim to be the only way to do it. Yeah. And can um, maybe you, maybe we miss this. Can you describe some of just the key features, some of those key things sure. that it does? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a couple of big components. We're up to three again. We had three at the start, we had build and we had serving and we had eventing. And the idea for build was we take your source code and we give you a container. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea for serving was we take your container and we run enough copies of it. And the idea for eventing was stuff's happening around you. We route it to you when you care about it. Yeah. So, you know, objects are getting uploaded or logs are getting collected or, you know, toothbrushes are being bought and you want to react to that stuff or toothbrushes are being put in shopping carts and you yeah. want to figure out, um, should I stick a coupon in there, you know, in that shopping cart that reminds you to buy, to get toothpaste too. Mm -hmm. You know, um, this was a, you know, extend the monolith model yeah. that um, was really compelling to me. Uh, you've got this giant shopping cart app and it's really big and hairy and you, everyone <laughs> who goes in there, uh, it takes them five times as long as it feels like it should to get stuff done because it's got so many places where there's weird edge cases and so forth. And, you know, oh, you can't do this for customers in country Y, but for all other countries you can. And like the code is terrible. Yeah. Like, that's just, that's just your life. How can you get new feature development out of the monolith so that you can do experiments? Like what happens if we add this, you know, toothpaste coupon to customers, you know, do they, do they buy more toothpaste? Yeah. If we prompt them with that. Um, 
rather than doing all of that development in the monolith and getting tied to the monolith's release cycles and so forth, if the monolith exposes an API for querying like what's in a user shopping cart and adding something to the shopping cart internally, um, all you need to do after that is to convince the monolith to um, do what someone dubbed an internal monologue. And I really love that out loud where <laughs> it's basically just emitting events saying, do to do, do okay so and so logged in do, to do, do i created a shopping cart for so and so and they put these items in it do to do, do another item got added to so and so's shopping cart and they're just going along talking to themselves do to do, do so and so's going to check out so and so's yeah. added a new address and you know all that stuff and then on the outside people can can pick out these events and maybe i'm the account fraud team and i'm like hey i'm interested in anyone who's adding an address and buying more than a thousand dollars worth of stuff like maybe your stuff doesn't get shipped until a human looks at that yeah can i build that outside the monolith using the monolith apis and its internal monologue the goal is for eventing to enable that kind of thing yeah you can still keep running your monolith your monolith's going to run for another 15 years yeah you've got a five-year project God to replace willing. It. you know <laughs> Five, you know, when that project fails in five years, you've got another five-year project to replace it. When that yep. one fails, you do one more five-year project that finally succeeds. Um, and then you're out of the monolith. Uh, but that's 15 years from now. Maybe in the meantime, you also got other stuff to do. Yeah. Um, and maybe we can get you, get most of your developers in small pushes outside the monolith. Serverless. Um, yeah. Fast iteration and development and so forth. So those were the three original pieces. Um, Build, uh, Jason Hall and a bunch of the folks there um, got too big for serverless and said, hey, wait, we could build all sorts of other stuff too. And went off and took all the ideas and formed Tecton. Good for them. You know, that's uh, Knative budded and you got a new project in a new foundation, nice. um, the Continuous Delivery Foundation. And so then there were two, serving and eventing. And serving and eventing went on for a while. Um, there was an attempt to start a functions working group as a much more focused, like how do we get people that full FAS experience? Yeah. Um, the so first function one as a work. service. Function as a service. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. So function as a service is this idea that AWS Lambda has, where it's basically write this little tiny function. It responds to exactly one thing. We'll run it for you as many times as you need. And you only have to think about that little tiny bit of business logic. And you don't really have to think about much of the wiring at all. Yeah. Um, and for Knative, we sort of said, well, it's easy to write an HTTP server. And as someone who's written a lot of HTTP servers, that's a very privileged position for me to take. <laughs> you know, it's easy to do it. I know you can do it. Attaboy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe it's not easy for everyone. And maybe that's work that most people shouldn't have to do. Yeah. And so um, we, you know, functions started as, a, as you know, okay, how can we take people's code, transform it into containers, and then um, run it on Knative serving and yay, everyone's happy. Um, and the first effort foundered due to a combination of COVID mm -hmm. um, hitting and all of the participants having their own particular pet technologies that they felt strongly attached to that uh -huh. needed to go in there as a choice. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, we had no place where there was a common interface to do work. It was, oh, we need an interface that's across, you know, 
CNCF build packs and OpenShift S2I. We need an interface that's across, you know, Tecton and, you know, other build on cluster system. We need yeah. an interface that's, you know, across, you know, language, dialect X and Y. And so, so forth. the requirements got huge. The, the requirements became a puzzle that no one had the energy to solve. <laughs> um, and it just ended there? Uh, that function's effort didn't quite end there, um, but it mostly ended there. Yeah. Um, one thing that did get spawned out of it was a vigorous discussion about how can we do things experimentally without needing to add them to the core of Knative. Yeah. And so there are actually now two orgs that the Knative project has, Knative and Knative Sandbox. And the Sandbox is optional mm -hmm. pieces of the project. All the network plugins live in Sandbox. All the event sources live in Sandbox. Mm -hmm. um, you might need one of the things from Sandbox to get a fully working cluster, but you don't, but there's choices there. Yeah. The stuff in core is stuff that we expect everyone to have and do. Yeah. And so functions, um, a second functions effort kicked off about six or eight months ago. And all I can say is the political landscape must have changed <laughs> because it moved through, um, I'm not going to say entirely easily, but much more smoothly. And um, they are looking at a 1.0 release sometime, or not a 1.0, awesome. but like a GA release later this year. Wait, that's um, exciting. Version numbering is another fun thing when you've got uh, 40 different repos that you release. So we've standardized <laughs> our version numbering and release cycle for all of our components that are GA and non-GA components are welcome to join in. So the most recent Knative release is 1.6. Um, we release every six weeks. Um, we're good. looking at changing that to less frequently because we've gotten some feedback from administrators that upgrading every six weeks is not their idea of a fun party. Yeah. Um, not, you know, not because we can't sustain the pace, but because um, administrators would prefer to have things happen less often. And uh, since we've reached a GA point and we are more stable now, um, it makes more sense to balance things towards yeah. that larger community of adopters than the smaller community of contributors. When we were 0.2, um, having a steady release chain that happened often made it easy for people to say, oh, I'm going to let this like miss a release and that's going to be okay. Yeah. Um, nowadays, we have feature flag mechanisms and so forth. So nothing that you do goes out and immediately impacts everyone anyway. Yeah. Um, if it does, that's a bug. We call that breaking people and we don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> try not to <laughs> we try real hard not to yeah <laughs> nice so i guess you're focusing on the serve or the deploying part right too so so functions is a new piece there um i think there's several pieces that we're going to discover that are complementary to functions that we don't have today um one is we don't have a great answer for long-running execution so um video transcode was a historical example you know, let's say you get a 30 minute YouTube video and you want to change the size from like big to small or, you know, have three or four different ones. Mm -hmm. um, that might take 15 minutes to transcode. But, you know, what if you get a two hour feature film 
you know, maybe that's an hour or an hour and a half to do that work. Um, yeah. Knative serving assumes you're going to keep an HTTP connection open for that time. And um, for an hour and a half, that might be optimistic. Yeah. So there's a, there are different architectures that you can use for that sort of thing. Um, stuff like work boards or, um, you know, job queuing systems and so forth have done that type of thing for a long time. Mm -hmm. It would be a perfectly serverless thing. It would just be a slightly different architecture. Yeah. If someone wanted to, you know, show up in Knative and be like, hey, I want to work on that. I would say, awesome. You know, I'd like to see your design to make sure you've thought through things like errors, but you should go for it. Um, yeah. Similarly, right now we have a lot of dancing around each other choreography capabilities through things like Knative eventing. Oh, you did this thing. And so I'm going to go do this thing over here. And in the end, look, it's a beautiful dance. Um, but we don't have any sort of straightforward declarative orchestration. Like, hey, you know, now it's time for you to go. Now it's time for you to go. Now it's time for you to go as a central thing where you can, you know, orchestrate like a saga, for example, of we're going to do these things. And if thing X breaks, then we're going to roll these things back. Mm -hmm. um, having a central structure in place for managing that can be really helpful. And um, how would you do that? Well, AWS has this um, service called Step Functions, mm -hmm. which basically gives you a state machine that you can march forward, call a Lambda, see what result it gets. And then based on the result of the Lambda, you can pick it apart a little bit with a weird little language they've got in there and decide, oh, you go next to state X or state Y. Okay. Um, I'm not saying it has to be step functions, but there's mm -hmm. there's obvious precedent out there. Um, Azure has a very beautiful little gem called durable functions that does it all in your native language. Um, it's also nice. a little weird. And so I'm not sure I would want to bake it into my core infrastructure, yeah. but it's a little beautiful gem that if yeah. someone showed me, here's how you do it in a language agnostic way with containers, I would be like, thank you. I love this. Nice. Um, similarly, um, there's a lot of pieces that we have that could be better um, at scaling and being serverless. Mm -hmm. So we have a bunch of things that are implemented as basically, oh, just run a container for each one of these things. And um, sometimes that's a little bit silly. Like I want a notification every minute, like just a heartbeat sent to me. Mm -hmm. um, and we have something called ping source. And this one is now multi-tenant, but when it was first created for each one of these you know, pokes you want in the cluster, a new container would be started that ran continuously to give you a poke once a minute. And that's not really a very efficient, like it. it's serverless in one sense in that, you know, okay, you maybe don't care about resources too much. Yeah. But on the other hand, you, this could all be one single container. And if you have, you know, 200 projects in here, each with, you know, three timers, all of a sudden you're running 600 containers where you could be running one. And that's yeah. where the numbers start to, you know, you start to actually start to care. Yeah. So um, we have some components that could use a little bit of that attention. Um, not the ping source. The ping source is good, but we've got yeah. some others. Um, and then, like, I think there's lots of other interesting computational models for serverless. If someone showed up and was like, we want to do this and we want to do this under Knative and we've got a plan. Yeah. That's the really key point. 
not just we're excited about this, but we've got a plan. Um, now that the Knative is in CNCF, I would probably say, hey, that's a great idea. Come on in. Um, for a while, Knative was in this weird limbo for multi-vendor where Google owned the trademarks, but they were going to be, you know, nice and not too like angry and stuff. But at the end of the day, the rules were you can advise Google, but Google's going to make its own decisions. Yeah. Um, now that the trademarks have been transferred to the CNCF, the rules are CNCF will make the decisions. You can bully CNCF if you want to make a certain outcome happen, but we they have rules written down. And if they choose to break the rules, it's because you know you managed to bully a foundation that's got a lot of other interested participants in it. Um, and so it's not clear how you do that bullying, you know, so even having... if you're a Google, um, mm -hmm. like you've got AWS and you've got Microsoft and you've got Red Hat and VMware and Apple and so forth, all in there as other platinum sponsors. So if Google's like, ah, we're going to stop giving you money, TNCF's like, ouch, that hurts. Yeah. But we're not going to, you know, just throw up all of our principles because, you know, look, all of our funding went away and we're going to be gone. Um so an independent foundation makes it a little bit easier to trust that the governance rules are going to be played straight. Yeah. Um, and I, that's not to say that I think that anyone at Google didn't want to play the governance rules straight, but that there was no backstop. If yeah. someone came, you know, if a VP changed and all of a sudden the, the rules changed, um, yeah. That's an exciting world to be in if you've built your own business off of, you know, what are the VP changes at some other large company? Wow. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but yeah, nowadays. I can imagine the politics, and, <laughs> the politics and open source. Well, I mean, the, not problem, in a foundation. the problem is actually that you don't get any control and you don't get any politics yeah. okay, on the I ultimate say. And, you know, if there's politics, then you can get in and you can give it your best shot. Um, if it's a VP that whose name you may not even know, um, you know, somewhere at Google and it comes out, you know, through a mouthpiece, um, poor Donna Malieri, who was um, the PM when Google announced that we don't plan to donate Knative for the, quote, for the foreseeable future, um, was the announcement for both Knative and Istio. Um, she her name got in a lot of articles and she was not the one making the decision. She was carrying the news and it sucked nice. to, be a to be the messenger there. So, um, you know, I doubt she's listening, but uh, want to acknowledge that, uh, you know, that was a place where she just had to carry some tough news and yeah. um, the fallout didn't, la didn't land on the person responsible for the decision. Um, so I guess I'll just ask you one more question and then maybe we can do another podcast about open source or like other I mean, stuff I'm, I am happy to, it, it's been an interesting experience. Um, very yeah. different from, uh, from anything I did before it. Nice. I, think, I hope that's in a good way. The awesome thing about open source, I'm going to say this here so you can get into this podcast, um, yeah. is that working in the open source I can work with a lot of great people and call them my colleagues, yeah. but we don't have to all have the same boss or cool. be on the same continent. And so I've met a lot of great people and worked with a lot of great people where I would not have encountered them otherwise. Yeah. You know, they, That's one cool thing. They, they, you know, they might've said, you know, 
hey, I don't want to work at Google. Or I might have said, you know, hey, I don't want to work at IBM. But, you know, oh, hey, here was a great person from IBM. I could call a colleague. Yeah. Um, and, you know, say, hey, this is one of my coworkers. You know, and he's in London. So, you know, we uh, he has to stay a bit late in his work day and I have to get up early to actually, you know, be on the same video call. But yeah, um, you know, or the Czech Republic, you know, we've got a couple of folks from there on the uh, technical oversight committee right now. And so they have late evenings on uh, Thursday night for them. Wow, that's nice of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great thing about open source is that you get to collaborate with people that you don't work with, but are super smart yeah. and want to work on the same thing. You with also you, do so get to discover cool. that there are time zones all around the world and they're all there. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So I guess the last thing I'll ask you is just looking forward. What, what do you hope to see for the future of, you know, like serverless or cloud computing as a whole, like, like, so let's say in like 20 years, what do you so hope to see? Those are two very different things I'm hoping. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping that we figure out more and more ways to make frameworks and tools serverless so that um, we end up, um, we did a little experiment that uh, I don't think we're gonna continue because it turned out that there were some parts that we didn't really like in our design um, on event stream processing. But it feels like event stream processing right now kind of is serverless if you're using something like Apache Flink and someone else sets up the Flink cluster for you. But um, a lot of the bits bleed through and aren't really very Kubernetes native. And so if you mm -hmm. wanted to use um, like your Kubernetes vulnerability scanners on your event processing pipeline, um, that might be awkward and unnatural. Um, so being able to take, I feel like Kubernetes has a bunch of warts. There's a bunch of things people would have chosen to do differently if they knew how it was gonna turn out. But it's also very successful and it solves a lot of problems that previously people just didn't solve. Yeah. Because it was, it was way too expensive to figure out how to solve them. And, you know, I feel perfectly comfortable that my blog would stay online if I went into my closet because I'm running my blog on that three nodes cluster and just <laughs> yank the power cord out of one of them. Just poink. Yeah. And, you know, without, you know, without that, you know, without Kubernetes and, and etcd and all the other stuff going on there to deal with losing one of the three nodes in a cluster, um, you end up with redundant power supplies and you end up with, you know, probably, you know, at a minimum, a 120 watt server generating heat mm -hmm. over there as opposed to like 40 watts. So yeah. um, there's lots of places that Kubernetes can go and can give you this common substrate that's really exciting. And like in some of these places, they're not even building hardware redundancy. It's actually Kubernetes on a single node. Yeah. It's still useful because it gives you all these abstractions for managing it. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping that some of those abstractions can become more serverless. And maybe most of the abstractions that developers work with can become more serverless. So maybe there can be, you know, cron jobs are kind of serverless depending on what you try to do today. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, I want to run this program once. Great. 
Now, if it's, I want to run, run this program and I want it to fan out across the entire cluster to do things, then all of a sudden you're getting into the guts of understanding Kubernetes again. And it would be yeah. nice to be able to solve that. But, um, you know, I want to run this every hour or something like that. It feels like, you know, Kubernetes cron jobs have that pretty well solved. Stateful sets um, are kind of the opposite of serverless. Mm -hmm. And some applications need them. Uh, some applications need pieces of them, but they yeah. can't get away from the whole thing because it, that's how it's been bundled. I'd love to see stuff. I know Google has a project around game servers where they let you spin up new game servers on Kubernetes and like, you know, as a bunch of people join a matchmaking room, then you're like, oh, I need another game server and it pops up. That feels like serverless game servers to me. How yeah. can we get more projects that use Kubernetes to make that kind of thing happen? And yeah. I say use Kubernetes, not because Kubernetes is wonderful and be all and end all, but because there's such an ecosystem of other tools around it. You know, vulnerability scanners and policy management and audit and logs collection and all that other stuff. If we can say Kubernetes is that common substrate for solving all these things, then um, as an app developer, I can float above it. Yeah. And I can just be like, here's my common set of things that I expect to have installed. And hopefully mm -hmm. that common set of things you expect to have installed, Kubernetes, uh, or sorry, Knative is in that list on top of Kubernetes, along with something like Cert Manager. So you can yeah. get your TLS certificates. Um, and maybe there's some kind of common, like write and append only log thing, like a Kafka type of thing. Yeah. Um, I've got complaints about the Kafka API, but you know, a theoretical thing that looks about like that or Apache Pulsar or one of the other things like that would be nice to be able to say, hey, this is just a common feature that everybody's got all the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe in the corner cases, you need to understand, oh, no, this is um, this is Red Panda or this is Kafka or this is, you know, Pulsar or whatever. But the core abstraction there is simple enough that you can just be like, it's a log. I append to it. I can seek in it. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I think and I would like to see that be sort of serverless in a sense of I could show up to my cluster and I can be like, I need a place to write a log. And it's like, here's the address you use and the protocol you used for writing the log. And that's kind of standard. And then yeah. what's underneath it? Is it cloud provider magic? You know, is it little gnomes desperately shoveling USB drives in and out of devices? <laughs> I don't care. I'm an app developer here. Yeah. I'm the king. <laughs> yeah. I think it'll um, make uh, software engineering much more accessible too. I mean, people, yeah. Yeah. New problems will always arise and like people find out how to do more things and new things. Um, but that's exciting. Well, and I think making it easier for people to do a little bit of software and have it be mostly right mm -hmm. is really attractive. And so, you know, there are some of these low code and no code startups as well that are doing interesting stuff mm -hmm. around making it so that, again, low code and no code is serverless because like your target audience you don't want to have to explain servers to them. Yeah. So yeah, it's going to be serverless by requirement. Yeah. Um, as but for I like writing cloud code. computing is going, <laughs> um, I think that's a real interesting question. 
as you start to get things like edge and so forth. Um, I know one of the big changes that I saw the last couple of years I was at Google was customers wanted country specific clouds or wanted, you know, what at Google we thought of as sort of satellite or edge locations um, yeah. that were more like cl what Cloudflare does where you've got like a half dozen servers in a closet that act as an edge content cache. And then, you know, at Google, they would call back into a central data center um, at Cloudflare with workers, they might actually just do stuff on the edge. Um, and then like some of the 5G things that people want to do as well, they want to actually be able to run an application in those telco closets. They want to be like, hey, we, st we stuck three Dells in here or five Dells in here. You know, they each have a pair of like 48 core CPUs. So we've got almost 500 CPUs in here. How can we sell 350 of them and run the network on the, on the other 150? Yeah. You know, and hopefully that interface isn't too terrible so that lots of people, you know, who have interesting stuff to do can get it done. I will admit, I don't understand what all they want to get done, but I <laughs> believe them that there's interesting stuff there to get done. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you so much for um, joining me on this podcast and uh, sharing all your stories. I find I found them very amusing. I always like talking to people who have seen the history of something grow, and uh, I really appreciated that insight that you gave. So thank you. I mean, I would say I've actually only been around for maybe half or so of the serverless arc, but it's yeah. been interesting. Yeah. Um, Kelsey Hightower has a great talk that he actually traces it back to INETD. Um, which is a program from the 80s that made it easier to write um, network services, they were called at the time. And you would <laughs> connect to them through like Telnet and you would type commands, they would send things back. Um, but writing all the code for Unix sockets kind of sucks. And so yeah. I, what INETD would do would be, you would say, listen on this port. And when someone connects, connect what they send over that socket to standard in of my program Standard out of my program goes back to that, you know, goes back to them. And I just write to standard in and standard out. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of serverless. Like, <laughs> you know, here's my program. I don't want to know about the network. Just, you know, do it. Yeah. Um, now it only works on a single machine because that's how INETD worked. But, um, and the protocol is completely just like whatever you want on this port. So, you know, we've grown up a little bit in the internet in the meantime. But um, but yeah, that feels like that's sort of the origin of all this serverless stuff. And then CGI bin and you know Apache servers and stuff like that was you know the iteration that I first really got started with. Um, you know, before I went to Google, and then at Google yeah. we didn't do CGI bin because <laughs> you know all our problems were big and real. And if yeah. it wasn't big and real, then we weren't going to do it. And yeah. then we launched this app engine thing, and we had a place to do small stuff. And all of a sudden, we had as many apps as there were Googlers. Wow. Like, yeah. Actually, I think that probably there were internally, by the time I left, 100,000 internal apps. Wow. People would just do an app for something because it was fun. That's awesome, though. You know, you want the menus downstairs. You want to, you know, you know, you here's an app that will watch your, you know, run your own copy of this app. It will... Um, watch this particular build that you've got. And then 
you can run a little program on your machine that calls that, you know, calls that endpoint and lights up a traffic light, you know, the connected by USB, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, you know, here's a dashboard for your test status that you can display on a TV. And it's just a web browser that's refreshing a page that's on App Engine. <laughs> um, I love that. You know, and all that stuff was super useful. And that's where like, that's the origin of stuff like the Kubernetes test grid. Yeah. So um, if it's serverless and it's easy for people to build and run and like once they build it, they can walk away and it keeps running and they don't have to think about it. Um, it lowers the bar a lot to writing apps and then you get a lot yeah. more cool apps by accident. Like, yeah, you know, if you take a hundred shots at a target, you're more likely to hit than if you take two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't matter know, who you are. <laughs> no, I, I, I love that it made it so easy. Um, yeah. That's great. So well, that's what serverless is about. I love it. It's great. Um, I love walking away from something I build and not, not caring about it for a while. <laughs> um, so are there any last words that you want to leave us with? I don't think so. Awesome. I've, I've well, had a lot of words. It's a good thing. Well, thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. Um, thanks for coming. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Alexa's Input. Make sure to subscribe so you know when the next episode comes out. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Alexa's Input. Finally, any donations are welcome. You can go click the link on in the description, go to the anchor page, and I do take donations because I edit and record these podcasts on my own. So those are very much appreciated. Thank you, and I'll see you next time.